Welcome to Engage 360, Denver Seminary's podcast. Join us as we explore the redemptive power of the gospel and the life-changing truth of scripture at work in our culture today. Hi, I'm Don Payne. I'm glad to be your host for Engage 360. In 2005, when the journalist Thomas Friedman released his very um, widely read book, The World is Flat, uh, he did not introduce the concept of globalization, but he probably gave it more popular currency than perhaps uh, it had had up to that time, arguably at least. But when Friedman talks about globalization, of course, he's speaking uh, largely in terms of communication technologies and economics, uh, world trade, things like that. But he also makes reference to this concept that has become very popular, multiculturalism. Uh, One of the features of globalization is that we live in a multicultural world, not in the sense that the world was any less multicultural before it was named, Mm. but now this phenomenon of globalization has created world circumstances in which we interact multiculturally in perhaps historically unprecedented ways. So we're here today on Engage 360 to talk about multicultural ministry, and I'm really glad to have my friend and our graduate, Brandon Washington, Mm. with us on the podcast. Welcome, Brandon. Thanks for having me. Uh, Brandon, uh, as I mentioned, is a graduate of Denver Seminary, holds an MA in theology, and I think before that got a BA in political science. Is that correct? That's correct. From the University of North Texas. Yes, sir. The green. The mean green. The mean green. Sorry. (laughs) The mean green. (laughs) They're not so mean, but... But they are green. (laughs) So Brandon uh, is a church planter, mm-hmm. though by now I guess uh, you've been at it long enough that you wouldn't call it a church plant anymore. But seven Brand- years. Yeah. Seven years, okay. Yeah. Brandon is the lead pastor. You've got a, a fancy title for that. We call it the pastor of preaching and vision. We try to avoid lead because we have a team. Okay, but okay. But I'm the one responsible for preaching the, and vision. You're the only one I know who's called that. But <laughs> <laughs> in my book, you are the lead pastor. Mm-hmm. Um of Embassy Church, uh, which meets in downtown Denver. Uh, give us the address or the location, the crossroads of that. We actually meet on the corner of Humboldt and MLK, which is a school. We meet at Cole Arts and Science Academy. You can't miss it. Miss it. It's, the, it's a huge middle school in northeast Denver, right at the border between the Cole neighborhood and Five Points. So everyone who lives in that neighborhood knows exactly where yeah. Cole Arts and Science Academy is. Come on, come all. Come on, come all. Yeah. So Brandon is uh, the planting pastor mm-hmm. of Embassy Church seven years ago. And from uh, conversations I've had with Brandon over the years, uh, I've realized that this was an intentionally multicultural church plant that has been, as I understand it anyway, part of the DNA mm-hmm. Uh, part of the the originating vision for Embassy Church. And so you've got a pretty good track record now of multicultural ministry. And I guess we need to to put the caveat on this, that when we use that phrase, multicultural, lots of people use that in lots of different ways for lots of different purposes. So we probably need to drill into that just a little bit and define what that term means, um, particularly in the context of ministry and church planting and, and the way you're experiencing it. Uh, so we'll get there along the way, but uh, that, that'll be our focus for today, right. uh, ministry in multicultural context or multicultural ministry, and uh, we want to draw on Durant, Brandon's experience, his expertise uh, in that. Tell us first, Brandon, uh, 
just a little bit about your own story, how you got to Denver, what, what the path was here, why, why this? Yeah, that was, that's a good setup for this because it's, it's essential to the, to the ethos of the church. So uh, I'm from Dallas, Texas, and um, I worked for a ministry there called The Urban Alternative, uh, which is led by Dr. Tony Evans. And um, we had a conference. We did a conference every year called the Urban Alternative uh, Church Development Conference, and it had sponsors. And there was one year when Denver Seminary came as one of the sponsors and they had a booth, and that was how I was introduced to Denver Seminary. It was a foregone conclusion growing up in Dallas and having a pastor who is um, an alum. Dr. Evans is the first African-American to get a Ph.D. from DTS, and he's on the board. So just a given that I was going to be attending Denver, a Dallas Seminary, and then um, I realized that, that there was a program here at Denver that better suited what my calling was. So that's how I ended up here in Denver. For context, though, before coming here, uh, for the entirety of my adolescence, I was a member of, um, I was a student of an Islamic cult called the Nation of Islam, and was taught the virtues of segregation. And um, after being delivered from that through my conversion uh, and being brought into the church, the thing I struggled with was I didn't see adequate difference between the church's view of culture, diverse cultures, and the Nation of Islam's understanding of it. It didn't make sense to me that we're claiming a relationship with the God who reigns over everyone and is calling everyone to himself but we look like the group that does not make such a claim. So that resulted in several conversations with my, with, uh, my pastors re regarding how this is supposed to look, and I was blessed by how the message of the gospel lends itself to a broader view of cultures, a more, a more diverse perspective on what culture is. The problem was how do you get an idea to become an action? How does that rubber meet the road? Uh, so when we when I came here and uh, and God decided after the seminary process that I was going to stay here, my my agenda was to finish school and get back to Texas. That's how I tricked my wife into marrying me. I promised her I was going to get her back to Texas. Uh, and, and and what could be wrong with that goal? Oh, that was that was I, we thought that was God's <laughs> divine plan. Here's a great thing he, God did for me though. Before he told me that we were staying, he told her, which helped me out quite a bit. And it's funny a, how often that happens. Yeah, he, well, he, God understands marriage. So the <laughs> so through a series of events that resulted in us um, recognizing the need to plant a church in uh, the northeast northeast neighborhoods, the northeast parts of Denver, and we chose that neighborhood because of its diversity. Um, it was in the early early phases of its gentrification, mm -hmm. but I didn't fully understand what gentrification is. Gentrification is not it's not merely the diversifying of a neighborhood. It's the resegregation of a neighborhood in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. So we planted celebrating its diversity, not recognizing that that diversity was a temporary transition point to its resegregation. It was actually becoming less diverse? Exactly. Okay. It went from being a neighborhood that was predominantly African-American, about 80% African-American um, in in the um, at the turn of the 21st century, to right around 18, 19 percent now, mm. and so a part of our mission when we realized that that was going to be happening was what does it look like for us to stem the tide of the negative aspects of gentrification and nurture 
diversity and integration in multicultural context here. And we make that a fundamental part of our gospel message in a near put because we recognize that as a need for that community. So what is it, you've alluded to this already, but say more about what it is that propels you or compels you about multicultural ministry, um, not only initially, but also as the years have passed, what continues to propel you about that? Yeah, there are a few things. Uh, num- number one, uh, we noticed that church planting in a neighborhood that looked the way ours looked when we planted, it would be irresponsible to not think multiculturally while planting a church in that context. Because if you walk down a street, at the time when we planted the church about seven years ago, the neighborhood was one-third white, one-third black, one-third brown. And, and uh, I had a conversation with, um, during our proposal phase, our fundraising phase, I had a conversation with a professor, not at Denver Seminary, who told me that uh, because of my personality type, how I look, my ethnicity, I should only, and his word was target, I should only target the black people in the neighborhood. And I, and I, I struggled with that because that would amount to me walking down the street and pointing at houses and saying yes, yes, no, no, and deciding who is and is not welcome in this body of believers. Yeah. And I found that deeply troubling. And I said, he says, if you look at how radio works, if you look at how television works, they choose their target demographic. And my struggle with that was the gospel that we're, that we're talking about is much more comprehensive than how radio and television it's works. It's not a target demographic it, no, gospel. It's not. It, not a, and, and I said, and how much more should we be mindful of how the gospel is not supposed to isolate those people groups, but it's actually dis- it's designed to bring them together. So let that be an essential aspect of our message. Ephesians 2 is a significant text for our church's identity. So we say verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2 addresses how humanity is reconciled to God, and 11 through 22 of Ephesians 2 addresses how humanity is reconciled to humanity. That's, and so a whole gospel message preaches all of Ephesians 2. Yeah. So we saw the diversity of the neighborhood as an opportunity versus a, a hurdle over which we had to leave. Okay, let, let me pick up on that point, and let, let's use that to think a little bit about what we mean by multiculturalism. Mm-hmm. Because as I mentioned earlier, lots of people use that phrase in a lot of different ways, lots of applications. How, how are you thinking about multiculturalism in terms of the gospel theologically? That's an excellent question. I love that. So, so here's what we had to do. We, we had to sit down. On, uh, well, let me, let me interrupt you there because I want you to compare that to some of the other maybe popular uses of the term multiculturalism. Yes, yes. So when, one of the things that we – when I had that conversation with that, with that professor who, who – teaches at a school in the southeast part of the country. And I, and I mention that because cultural context is significant. The, the, world, the part of the world from which he came informed his advice on how this works. Um, we had to sit down and come to grips with the definitions of these terms. And we realized that when, we're talking to, when we were talking to him, he was using the word culture as a synonym for ethnicity, and they're not synonyms. They're not synonyms. African Americans actually have more than one subculture. I learned that because I moved from Texas to Colorado. And the cultural norms that exist in the South or the Southeast part of the country 
are nothing like what you would experience if you go from Texas to New York. We may look the same, but and we may even have many historical similarities, but there are we still identify with different subcultures. So we had to have a, a, a study of what we mean by these terms, and we realized that um, we came to the conclusion that things like the word race, words like the word race are complicated because they're creating a plurality where there's a singularity. We would contend that's only one race, humanity, but that one race is comprised of many ethnicities, and those many ethnicities are comprised of even more cultures. Okay. So it's possible for, for I, I have a very good friend who is from Ghana, and when people see the two of us together, they think, Two men look the same. He's about, he's he's built the way I am. We have same skin color and everything. They assume you have a lot in common. But and ethn, ethn, our ethnicity may be very very similar, but our cultures are very different. So when we address culture, especially if you live in a metropolitan cosmopolitan city, you have to be mindful of the fact that culture has to. You have to approach culture from the perspective of valuing multiplicity. You have to. So every culture that you're going to be engaging has to be one that is welcomed. That, that helps us out in many regards. So first, so my, oftentimes when I have this conversation, someone will come to me and they'll ask, well, Brandon, what about those of us who live in Hockey Puck, Nebraska, where there are not very many people who look like you? I said, you do not have to be multi-ethnic to be multicultural. That's why we have to distinguish between okay. those two terms. Okay. It is possible for you to value a culture other than your own, even if none of those who represent that culture are present. Okay. And that's what I would contend a multicultural body of believers is. I would also argue that that is fundamental to a comprehensive gospel message. Okay. And practically speaking, the, re- the reason that's a value of mine, it comes down to a matter of ethics. And I think you and I have discussed this before. I, I took a I took a class here that was taught by my favorite professor uh, called Theological Method, and and um, and in that class, he one of the things that came up was how experience informs our perspective, uh, our view of the world. My wife drives a Chrysler Town and Country. I had never seen a Chrysler Town and Country until I bought one. And now I see them. Now everywhere. you see them everywhere, right? <laughs> and my wife says it's because you had a Chrysler Town and Country experience. Yeah. So now you see Chrysler Towns and Country, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think that because of the different cultural experiences, we have different lenses, different perspectives on the world, and that informs our ethics. That's why that I would contend. Yeah. That's why we have diverse views of what justice is, right and wrong behavior across cultural lines because those different cultural identities had different experiences out of the same America. When you diversify, then my experiences become your experiences. You may not have had my experiences, but you do have me, and oh, therefore yeah. my experiences become yours, and you gain my lenses. And, and that broadens see. my world. Exactly. And it broadens my view of God. I believe that that is a healthier view of the church. That's a healthier perspective on the church. When the church is diverse, then I, even if I don't have your lenses, if I have yours, then I'm able to see the world from your perspective, and that's how God intended for the church to be. Love it. Tell us a little bit specifically about Embassy Church. Okay, so we planted uh, we planted the church in April of 2012, and uh, it was, it was a, 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 there was a team of us. Um, and we're elder governed, so 
to the point we made earlier about the titles. I my voice is heard in the in the room with the elders. My my voice is heard with greater weight, but not with greater authority. It could just be because I'm loud. But the it could be. Yeah, that, my wife tells me all the time. <laughs> but the the um, but we had that is how we're how we're leading, and um, we, we have one of our distinctives is diversity and integrations. We deli- diversity and integration. We deliberately use both terms. Because we observe that it's possible for a worship gathering on Sunday morning to be diverse, but after the benediction, everyone goes their separate ways and does not, they, they do not engage one another. So while they look diverse on Sunday morning, their lives are not integrated. So that different, that different perspective, that cultural lenses exchange doesn't occur because we're just, we look like something that we're not. So one of the things that we value is our home groups. We call them missional communities. And uh, we have a specific pastor responsible for mission communities, and one of his uh, one of his pet peeves is that you do not allow he does not allow affinity groups. So we do not have a singles home group. We do not have a marrieds. We do not have you know generational nothing like that. It's all it's either determined by geography or pre existing relationships. Okay, and the reason he does that is he wants for it to be organically diverse so that those lives and those different cultural backgrounds can rub against one another. And the rough spots can be smoothed out and spiritual formation and growth and growth can occur because you're hearing how the world looks from a different angle. All right, so what does the multicultural character of ministry at Embassy Church look like, particularly in the form of some of the challenges that you faced Mm -hmm. through the years? Yeah, so a couple things on that. Number one, the... (laughs) We, our, our leadership team is deliberately diverse. I'm unapologetic about that, unapologetic. I, 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 I have been accused of, of um, uh, the word tokenism may have been used a few times. But for me, tokenism is you choose someone because of their ethnicity. Well, you don't, you don't, your, ethnicity does not quali- your ethnicity does not qualify you for a leadership role at our church. It's, you had to be qualified for it. But I do want different perspectives that are backing that those qualifications. Okay. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the manner in which we do worship is deliberately culturally diverse. So when people when we gather on Sunday morning, we don't have one Sunday where we sing um black gospel songs and then another Sunday where we sing hymns and then another Sunday where we sing contemporary Christian songs. We do them all in the same gathering and don't emphasize the transitions between them. So it's kind of jarring. Yeah, we don't. We just, just, okay. just, just And after a while, no one notices notices the differences between them anymore. It's just they, the they're not know, thinking. Oh, now we're doing this. Exactly. Now we're doing this. There, there was a Sunday. You were at church this Sunday. It was for our anniversary. Yes, we, I was there. And we have a a young man in our church named Ben who sang a mighty fortress as a part of our. I remember church. that. And the first time he did that, he had to. He had to adjust to the call and response behavior of the of the African Americans in the room. Because, as I recall, he was like a trained university trained vocalist. Exactly. Right? Yes. He's a, he's a he's a, he's he has a um, he studied opera at uh, at the University of Denver, and he, he and he's just accustomed to getting up and singing a song. And when he's done, everyone applauds. But while he was singing, people stand up and they are engaging him while he's doing it. 
and threw him off his game. It huh? honestly did the first time, <laughs> the first time, and now he wouldn't know what to do if everyone said quiet because the lines of distinctions, those lines blurred over time, and it was just a matter of us saying, let's acknowledge all these different cultural norms. Christ is the center of every one of the acts. We don't want the culture to be the center. We want the culture to be the means toward celebrating God and making God famous. I like the way you put that. But we do want to have a diversity of means so that after a while, those cultural barriers, while they, they still go, they don't go unnoticed, but they don't become jarring anymore. So when you're out in the world, you're able to be you you have to be multicultural in how you engage people for the sake of the gospel message. Okay, so over seven years' time, what has been most difficult about this? What have been some of the it's the relentless challenges that you faced? Yeah, that is a good question. The biggest challenge we we faced is I never appreciated how many people love the language of diversity, multiculturalism on paper and push back when it's time to carry it out. So I can't tell you how many people have come to us. So one of the biggest things that happened was when we planted the church, because the church was still, the neighborhood was still predominantly African-American when we planted, the majority of the church was African-American when we planted. But as the neighborhood diversified, the church's demographic followed the neighborhood's demographic. And people would come to us and say, there are too many white people here now. And they wouldn't leave the church because of that. That has mm-hmm. happened more times than I would care to admit. Mm-hmm. It's been deeply disappointing. It made me realize how much culture is an idol for us. Our specific cultural identity is an idol for us. So when you ask someone to lay some of their identity on an altar so that someone who is not like them can feel welcome here, not the entirety of your identity, because you're not multicultural, I have to lay the entirety of who I am down. But if you have to put some of it on an altar so that someone who's not like you can be here and hear the same gospel message you're hearing, people said we are un- some people said we are unwilling to do that. There were people who will come and they will, they will struggle with how many African-Americans are there, which I find interesting because now the church is probably 40% African-American because of the diversity, but that they'll push back against that. The other one is a subtle one, and that is people will assume that the church having a black preaching pastor is all that is necessary for the church to be diverse. Really? Yes. So we'll have a so there's this there's this influx. There was a there was a point at which diversity became a celebrated term. So a bunch of young white students would come to the church and they would celebrate being a part of a church with a black pastor because having a black pastor means that they're at a diverse church. And I, and I have to explain to them. That's was not that kind works. of a, I don't mean to be catty about this, but was that kind of a cool thing? Oh, absolutely. It, it was, it was hip. It was a hip thing to do. Okay. It was absolutely. And we had to explain to them that, that that's not, that's by far, um, that falls far short of what we mean when we use that language. What does your life look like when you're not here? Who are you engaging when you're not here? How do you model a a global a globally applied gospel when you are not here? We had to have conversations about that. In fact, I, I made it a point as part of my annual preaching calendar 
to address that at least once in the spring so that we don't fall back into that behavior. Okay. You know, you're reminding me of an experience I had well over 20 years ago when I was in Calcutta, India, for a short period of time and visited Mother Teresa's main hospital there in the heart of Calcutta. Mm-hmm. Um, at that time, she was still alive but was not there that day. But I interacted with an American physician who was in residence there, and he was telling me about the pattern he had seen of young, well-meaning Americans who would come over there and do stints of work Mm -hmm. at Mother Teresa's hospital. Mm -hmm. And he said he had seen the pattern where initially they absolutely loved it because it was glamorous, it was exotic, it Mm -hmm. was different, it was romantic, it was Calcutta. And then after a few weeks or months, the reality set in, this is Calcutta. And they began to just loathe the place until if they stuck with it, he said, they would re-embrace it and learn to love it, but in a very different way. Right. But they had to push past the romanticism. There you go. That was the word, that's the word we use. We said we would tell people that we, we, made this, we, ob- we observed that same cycle. They would come and there was a newness to it. There was, there was a certain romance to this. And to be at a church where we, we would deliberately, carefully, but deliberately address matters of social justice, because I believe that social justice is invariably linked to the gospel. I think that if you're not mindful of that, you're not preaching a comprehensive gospel message. The problem is they would think that we are a social justice church. And when the and when the romance of being at a church where something will be addressed wears off, because he doesn't—he's not talking about this every week. He's not—he's not addressing this every time we come here. They would—they would see what the real thing is and get a broader view of our message. And some of them will either leave during that season, or they would endure and and fall back in love with what we're doing because they see what we're actually about now. Same pattern. Yeah. Wow. So, what are some of the things you've learned along the way? as you've done this? what? Uh, how has your mind changed about anything, and how has it changed you? Okay, so it has definitely made me more patient, okay? It also taught me that um, um, this kind of thing that when I say, I, I say this, I get in trouble for it, but the that racism and uh, there are people who will, who, who will agree with me when we discuss matters of race but they'll take offense when you discuss matters of racism. Uh, and I also noticed that racism should be more broadly applied than we, than we realize. We, we think that certain people, certain ethnicities have a monopoly on the term. And I learned in the midst of this that um, it is possible for someone who looks like me to despise someone who doesn't look like us just based solely on the color mm. of their skin. Mm. We're having to address that directly. It has it has it has taught me of um, uh, how I need to be more gracious when I, how I address um, these matters because sometimes you function solely out of what you were taught to do, and my responsibility is not to chastise you for how you were taught, is to maybe give you a new perspective on what you were taught, and I had to be more patient in how I engage that. So instead of addressing it out of anger, what does it look like for me to be edifying and profiting and prophetic? When, I, when I'm engaging these matters. I had to figure out how to do that well. I really appreciate that. Yeah. If you're, uh, you're talking to somebody who's thinking about the possibility of intentional multicultural ministry like what you're doing, mm-hmm. what's the one big thing you would tell them? Immerse yourself in some 
in a, in a world other than your own. It doesn't necessarily have to be every other world, but your your agenda there is not to know every culture in the world. It's to be more acquainted with your own by exposing yourself to another. That I think that that is an often um, dismissed part of what we're supposed to be doing as a mission. When I when I when I have conversations with friends of mine regarding church planting, I have to often remind them that they are they are planting a culturally specific church and don't even realize it. Mm-hmm. And so when they're preaching a gospel message, they, they're saying to people, "Why don't you just be this way? Why don't you just do this?" But you're telling them to abandon legitimate parts of who they are and adopt who you are. You don't notice that you're doing that until you have to immerse yourself in another culture and become more acquainted with who you are. So before planting a church that looks like the world, expose yourself to parts of the world other than your own. Hmm. I want to talk about Bonhoeffer a little bit. You wrote uh, a master's thesis on Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I did. And people who may know Bonhoeffer's name uh, may very well be acquainted with some of his more well-known works like Life Together or The Cost of Discipleship. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure how much or how broadly his other works are known beyond those two, but you did a massive amount of research on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and we could have a whole other podcast on that, I know. We could. Uh, but tell me just a few of the key takeaways from Bonhoeffer for how he changed your thinking and how he changed or shaped your approach to ministry? Excellent question. I, I learned the difference between I learned the difference between a principle and the application of a principle by reading Bonhoeffer. So uh, the, the best example of that is that when people think of Bonhoeffer, they have this image of him running through the streets of Berlin with a plaid shirt on and a rifle, I guess, trying to find Adolf Hitler so he can end the Holocaust. That is such an erroneous perspective on who Bonhoeffer was. Um, he was a pacifist, unapologetic pacifist. And his pacifism was deeply informed by how he viewed human beings. The image of God was significant for him. And his, the idea was, because human beings are so valuable, warring is wrong. But experience, this goes back to the, how experience informs your ethics, experience didn't change that view, but it, it gave it nuance. It, it, it modified it a bit. And he realized that the image of God is the principle, and pacifism was its application. But it's possible for you to be a pacifist at the expense of the image of God as well. So, the, so he says, how do you apply the image of God, the value of human beings in the midst of the Holocaust? I had to, he had to abandon his pacifism and become part of the coup d'etat to keep hundreds of thousands of Jews annually from being killed. That completely changed how I view ethics. How I'm not, I'm not situationist. I'm not that person who says, you know, what mood am I in this moment? I believe that behavior is objective and can have universal applications, but you have to back up to the principle and not be fixed on the application so that you can have that authority and that universal application. Mm. Among the things that Bonhoeffer taught me, that was, that was one of them. Why should people read Bonhoeffer? Bonhoeffer was this— and I, and I ask that because lots of, tra- lots of Christian traditions make use of Bonhoeffer very conveniently— mm-hmm. 
and he's become sort of like theological Plato. He has. Uh, people do whatever they want to do with Bonhoeffer, and some people are freaked out by Bonhoeffer. Right, right. Why should people read Bonhoeffer? Yeah, one of the reasons I love Bonhoeffer is he is one of the— I don't, I don't like creating this divide, so let these dot, let, let the lines that divide these two offices be dotted. But but they had to be there for a moment. The Bonhoeffer was both a theologian and a pastor. And I, I, I've my experience has been that theologians are very good with the ideas. Right? I have a degree in theology from this school. I, I'm a fan of theologians. But I noticed that we we're very good with ideas, sometimes at the expense of their practical outworking. Um, and I know that sometimes my, some of my friends who are pastors are much more capable of addressing pragmatic value versus the, the, the legitimacy of the idea. And Bonhoeffer walked the tightrope that tried to keep those two worlds in a balance. So he wanted the idea to be solid, but he would contend that every idea, every theological idea, to use his term, had to be concretized. I never heard that word entire. I had never seen that word tolerated in, in Bonhoeffer's work, and now I can't stop using it. Concretized. Yes, he's, it, it's a, it's, he says every good theological idea only has value if it's if it can be concretized. If it if I cannot readily take it to its practical implications on the world, then he questions the legitimacy or legitimacy or worth of the theological idea. That conviction from him, that tension between being a theologian who's also a pastor, is a conviction for me, and it's an office into which, into which I, I want to step myself. So apart from perhaps his two most familiar books, Life Together and Cost of Discipleship, mm-hmm. what would you want people to read from Bonhoeffer? Everyone should read Bonhoeffer's Ethics. Okay. Everyone. Everyone should read his ethics. He also wrote a, a doctoral dissertation on on the body. Sanctorum Communio. Yes, there you go. How do I... <laughs> Uh, I want I want the I want the smartest person to say it, but the the everyone should read his 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 doctoral dissertation. Carl Bart called it a miracle. He's, he called his his doctoral dissertation a miraculous work. And when you Carl know and what irritates it, me most about that is that he was twenty one years old when he wrote it. Yes, and it was the, it was the first it was the first <laughs> of two. Just want to say that for the record, he came to America and did it again. But the I I I think that that one of the things that he did a very good job of was exposing people to the value and the uniqueness of the church, the universal church. And the, going to the concretized perspective, and again, he came to America and got an even more precise understanding of what that was by attending a black Baptist church in Harlem. During the Holocaust, a German-speaking German came to study at Union Theological Seminary and was a Sunday school teacher at Abyssinian Baptist Church in Harlem and took much of the practical theology that he learned there back to Germany to resist the the Holocaust and the atrocities against um, ethnic Jews there in Germany. Because how specifically? I'm I'm baiting you here because there's something I want you to say. How did that change him? Under, under the pastoral leadership of Adam Clayton Powell Sr., he heard the term costly grace versus cheap grace. And it goes back to the outworking of the ideas, the outworking, the practical outworking of the gospel message. He saw in the 
civil rights era, the early civil rights era, because this was in the 30s, the early civil rights era black church in America was not just saying what the gospel was. They were doing what the gospel was. And he wanted to take that back to Germany with him. That's great. Yeah. Okay. It's time now for my SSPQ, my stereotypically stupid podcast question. Okay. (laughs) And stereotypically stupid refers to the question, not the podcast. Okay. I hope. I hope so. (laughs) What are the best and worst cars you have ever owned? Oh, okay. The best car. See, I'm not, I'm not the best person to answer this question because I don't do. I'm not. I'm. I'm much more of a car on paper person versus a car owner person. You've not concretized this. I yet, have not have concretized you? it. Yeah, best. the the best car I've ever owned was a 1993 Jeep Grand Cherokee, and it's because it's the first car I ever bought myself. Yeah. Okay. Um. And so it's, it's, I mean, it had. Low miles on it, and it still had the new car smell, and I, that's nothing like it. Yes, there's nothing like it. Would, would I would I put that in a in a uh, in a car calendar to hang on my wall? No, but it's it was my introduction to buying my own car. Okay, the worst car I ever owned was a 1987 Plymouth Voyager, uh, and I bought that as well. But I bought it for one dollar from my dad, and you got what you paid for. I paid one dollar for it, and <laughs> And uh, and it's I couldn't drive I couldn't go through a drive through at a restaurant because it smoked so badly that smoke would just billow into the restaurant. <laughs> but but it was a minivan. I was a 18 year old with a minivan. So whenever it was time to go to the movies, everyone would pile into my car. They would give me a hard time every other day. Yeah, that's about as uncool as you can get. But you can make it at cool 18. if you. It's all. It's see. It's the car doesn't make the man. The man makes the car. Okay, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it works for Point me. Point taken. <laughs> we have been interacting with our good friend Brandon Washington, pastor of Vision and Preaching. Did I get that right? It's backwards, but it works for me. Pastor of Preaching and Vision at the Embassy Church in Denver. And we are so glad for his insights and his time with us. Brandon, been good to have you here. Thanks for having We me. hope you'll uh, interact with us. You can email us, podcast at denverseminary.edu. Want to give another word of thanks to our production team who are always there for us and keeping this thing moving. Very grateful for them. Grateful for each of you who listen. On behalf of all these fine folks, I'm Don Payne, your host. This has been Engage 360. We hope to talk to you again next week.